0: In 1875, here's what the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said about the book of Revelation. He said, The sum total of substantial instruction in nearly all the comments about the Revelation amount to this, that our Heavenly Father has said in his word some mysterious things, which few of his children can yet comprehend. Revelation is a confusing book. Perhaps some of you read the sermon passage this week. You finished, you put your Bible down, and you said, huh, wonder what that's about. But, friends, God intends for the book of Revelation to bless us. And in order for it to bless us, we need to understand it. So I want to simplify things for you this afternoon. Two words, here's what the book's about. God wins. That's really what this book is about. In the end, God wins. So friends, don't get lost in the weeds. Remember those two words. God wins. Revelation wasn't written to scare us. It was written to prepare us so that we could faithfully follow the Lamb until he returns. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Revelation chapters 12 to 14. If you're a Christian, I expect you are turning there now because it's God's word, and we've just prayed and asked that he would speak to us. So I hope you have your Bible open. Let's pray one more time, and let's ask for God's help. Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us. We pray that you would use your word, these chapters, to build us up in our faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, today in chapters 12 to 14, John sees seven visions, seven visions. They're about a cosmic conflict. And at the end of these seven visions, he sees the end, the last day, judgment. And there he sees that God wins. Here's the main point. We've escaped God's wrath, but we must endure Satan's wrath. If you're a Christian, you've escaped God's wrath but you must endure Satan's wrath. In chapter 12, we see that Christ defeated Satan. In chapter 13, Satan deceives the world. And in chapter 14, we see that Satan will be defeated forever. Follow along as I read Revelation chapter 12. And a great great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for one thousand two hundred and sixty days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Chapter 12. Christ defeated Satan. That's what's going on here. You might have been confused. There's a woman who gets wings of an eagle. She flies away. She's kept in the wilderness. She's prepared by God. That's what's happening here. Christ defeated Satan. And in chapter 12, we saw there's a woman, there's a child, and there's a dragon. They're at war. Look at verses 1 through 6. John sees two signs in heaven. In verse 1, the woman is pregnant. In verse 4, The dragon seeks to devour her child. Now, we just read in verse 9, we know who the dragon is. The dragon is the devil. It's Satan himself. But who is the woman? Is she Mary? Is she Eve? In verse 2, we see that she has birth pains, which should remind us of the Old Testament people of God who were longing for their Savior. But in verse 6, she flees into the wilderness for 1,260 days, which, as we talked about last week, those are the days between Christ's ascension and his return. So who's the woman? It seems that she's both the Old Testament people of God, longing for a Savior, and the New Testament people of God. All God's people. So it is Mary, in a sense, but it's all God's people throughout history. And this woman is threatened by the dragon. Look at verse 4. First he sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven. Then he sets his sights on her child. Now what are the stars here in Daniel 8, which is some of the background here? The stars symbolize Israelites who have been trampled by an evil ruler. So John shows that God's people in the past have been attacked by the dragon. But he also reminds that the dragon is ready to attack again. But look at verse 5. She gives birth to a son, and he's caught up to God. The son is the son. It's Jesus Christ. But look at all we're told about him. He's born, and then he ascends to God. One sentence, that's what we get. His life, death, resurrection, his whole ministry in a sentence. John's point here is to remind the readers that Jesus is Alive and that he reigns. That's his point. But, friends, from the beginning, we see here in these passages that Satan opposes God's people. But Satan couldn't defeat God's son. Look at verses 7 through 12. War again, this time it's in heaven. The details are sparse. If you're like me and you like a good battle scene in a movie, I'm sorry. You don't get much here. All it says is Michael fought and then the devil fought back. The point is the outcome. Look what happens in verse 8. Satan was defeated. What good news for the Christian. Satan was defeated and repeated throughout this section. You probably noticed it as we read. Satan was thrown down. Satan was defeated when? When Christ was crucified On the cross. But think about it. Even if you were there on that day, you watched Christ crucified. You could not see these heavenly realities. John is unveiling them for us. What would you have seen if you had his eyes? You would have seen from heaven's perspective Jesus bruised his heel, but he crushed Satan's head. You would have seen that Jesus was dead for three days, but he rose again. And then he went up to the Father, and Satan came crashing down. That's what you would have seen. And John tells us about our great enemy, that ancient foe, Satan. He says that Satan is two things. He's the deceiver, and he's the accuser. Look at verse 9. John says he's the deceiver of the whole world. You know, you remember back to the fall, we just read Genesis 3. Eve said that the serpent deceived me. She blamed her sin on the serpent. He did tempt her. Satan said to her, did God really say? He's the father of lies. He's been lying from the beginning. You know, if you're a Christian, I wonder, what lies are you tempted to believe that come straight from Satan's mouth? Could it be Lies about sexuality and gender. Maybe it's lies about the goodness of authority. Maybe it's lies about prosperity and suffering. Kids, let me encourage you here. Can you spot Satan's lies? Ask your parents after the service. What are some lies that Satan speaks today? And look at verse 10. John says, Satan is the accuser Of our brothers. Imagine this. This is what he's talking about here. Before the death of Christ, day and night, Satan stood before God and he accused us of our sins. Church, we need to be careful here that we don't actually do Satan's job for him. Now, what am I talking about? We all sin. So we need to, as our church covenant says, faithfully warn and rebuke and admonish one another when necessary. That's true for church members. If you're a deacon, it's true for deacons. If you're an elder, it's true for elders. Everyone needs correction because everyone is a sinner. We all keep sinning. But gossip and slander, friends, those divide the church. They destroy the church. So I wonder if you're surrounding yourself with people who are building up the church or are tearing it down. Satan's the accuser. That's his job. He's the enemy. He tempts us. He tricks us. He seeks to divide us, to destroy us. But consider this great truth. What ground does Satan have against the Christian today? Nothing. We are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven of all our sin. As Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, that's good news for us. Satan, he's been defeated. He's been defeated by Christ. And look at verse 11. We have conquered him. He says we have conquered him. How? In our own strength? No, as we sang earlier, did we in our own strength confide our striving? It would be losing. We would just lose. Christ conquered he conquered as a slain lamb and we conquer through his shed blood. We conquer by believing the gospel that Jesus Christ did die on the cross for sinners like us. And we conquer by sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel conquers Satan. When you share the gospel with a coworker, you are conquering Satan. What good news. As you share the gospel with a family member, You're conquering Satan. He's being reminded over and over again that he's been defeated, that he's a loser. But look at the end of verse 11. Christians are not triumphalistic yet because our conquering will look like our Savior's conquering. Look at the end of verse 11. It may even lead to our death. While Christ defeated Satan, we see in verses 12 and on that Satan wages war against the church. Look at verse 12. His wrath is great, but his time is short. The end of chapter 12 reveals this war. The defeated dragon couldn't conquer the groom, so he turns to the bride. Friends, church, we are in the middle of a spiritual war right now. But in the midst of this attack from Satan, look what happens in verse 14. The woman flies away on the wings of an eagle. She's taken to the wilderness. She's going to be nourished there. In verse 15, the serpent throws a flood, but the earth swallows it up. What's happening here? God is protecting his people. Church, let me remind you that Your greatest enemy, it's not your boss. It's not a church member that you're in conflict with. It's not your spouse. It's not even a world power. It's the devil himself. But he's been defeated. Christ defeated him. Take comfort in Christ's death that defeated your greatest enemy. I love how Paul considers this idea in Romans 8. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Church member, I want you to consider heaven's throne now. Satan's absent, and so are his accusations. But Christ is there, and he's interceding for you. He knows all your sins, yet he doesn't accuse you. He prays for you. That's our Savior. Christ defeated Satan, but don't forget, friends, Satan's wrath is great. Point number two. Point number two, Satan deceives the world. Look at chapter 13. Listen as I read it. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great, and, his, uh, and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Friends, Satan's been defeated, and he's been thrown down, so what does he do? he takes out his wrath on the world. But it's only for a short time. In between Christ's ascension and his return, Satan deceives the world. And here in chapter 13, we see how Satan's at work in the world today. John sees two visions of two beasts. One's from the sea, the other one's from the earth. With the dragon, these two beasts form a sort of unholy trinity. They're like a parody of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But John unmasks them so that we can endure. Look at the first beast in verses 1 through 10. The first beast mimics Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 1, he has a crown, but it's got blasphemous names. He receives authority in verse 2 and a throne from the dragon like Christ receives his throne from the Father. In verse 3, this beast even has a mortal wound, which is healed. It's like a death and a resurrection. If you remember back to Revelation chapters 4 and 5, John saw a vision of the saints worshiping the Father and the Lamb. But here, look at verse 4, the world worships the dragon and the beast. Now, Daniel 7 is the background for chapter 13. So let me encourage you, you if you have questions about some of the intricacies of this chapter, Daniel 7 would be a good place to go. He sees four beasts, and they represent world powers. It seems that John combines those four beasts into this beast. So what does the beast represent? A couple different options here. I will keep it simple. Some people say it's the Roman Empire, the first century. Others say it's a future antichrist. And here's why I think both are correct. I think the B stands for all empires, past and present and future, that oppose God and his church. So that's enemies in the past. You know, John's first readers likely would have thought of the Roman Empire. But it does apply to us today. And it's not just a future application. It's present. Because government is a good gift from God. But what does Satan do? He distorts it. It's supposed to curb evil and promote good, but Satan uses it to crush God's people. He uses governments to war against the church. You know, Daniel knew this well. In Daniel's day, Nebuchadnezzar demanded that everyone worship his image or they got thrown into a fire. In John's day, the Roman Empire demanded total devotion to the emperor or the threat of death. You know there's many totalitarian states today that make these same demands. You know, our region, those who follow the lamb from a Muslim background, they face these kinds of threats. If you were in India, if you were to follow the lamb from a Hindu background, you would know this is true. You know, some of the members in our church, they experience this reality, and we should care for them. We should pray for them. We should strengthen them. Because the beast, in verse 6, blasphemes them. He blasphemes all those who dwell in heaven. But look who worships the beast in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It's all who dwell on earth. Remember in Revelation, there are those who dwell in heaven and there are those who dwell on earth. The ones... Called heaven dwellers, those are the ones Satan attacks. And the earth dwellers, they're the ones that Satan deceives. And friend, I have to ask you, which one are you? If you're not a Christian, you can have two options here you can worship the Lamb, or you can worship the beast. There's no other options. You know, perhaps you're thinking, Michael, look, I know I don't believe in Jesus, but I actually don't believe in Satan either, so I don't, certainly don't worship him. But friends, Satan is fine if you don't believe in him. He doesn't care. As long as you don't believe in God, you're worshiping him. Maybe you're thinking, okay, um, you know, how do I worship Satan? I, you know, I treat my family with respect. I try to be a good person. I do good things to other people. Surely that's not worship of Satan, but here's the thing. Satan is glad for you to be a good person. He's glad for you to have respectable sins and respectable idols like being a good family member or working hard or doing good deeds. He's glad for all of that idolatry as long as it's not worshiping the one true God. I pray for you, friend, that Satan would open your eyes. Not Satan, excuse me. That's not my prayer. I pray that God would open your eyes to Satan's lies. And brothers and sisters, before moving to the second beast, look at how John warns us, the church, in verse 10. He says a sobering truth. Some believers are ordained by God for captivity. Others are ordained by God for the sword. What does that mean, Christian? It means that Satan will use worldly governments to attack us. He may even use them to conquer us, even to kill us. Friend, I don't know if you'll find yourself in that situation. If you're faithfully following Christ, others before you have. Others after you will. If you find yourself in that predicament for your testimony in Jesus Christ, let me encourage you. Take heart. God has not forgotten you. He knows your name. Even before the foundation of the world. You know, I think about um, our, our youngest daughter was born just a few weeks ago. And Hannah and I, we wrestled for what we were going to name her. You know, we, we could not agree. And she was finally born. And it was only after that that we said her name is Piper. And, you know, I think about it. For the Christian, God has written your name in the book of life before you were even born, before the foundations of the earth. And, friend, he's ordained your days. He has them in his hand. You know, I think about what we sang earlier in the service. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Look at the second beast in verse 11. The second beast, you'll see there, he's got horns like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. In verses 12 through 14, he deceives the earth dwellers into worshiping the first beast. He uses great signs to do this. And in verses 15 to 17, all those who don't do this, it says they're going to be slain. So all the earth worships the beast, and then everyone's marked by the beast. If you don't have this mark, you won't even be able to participate in the marketplace. So in verse 18, John calls for wisdom. He says we need wisdom to calculate the number of the beast, 666. All right, three questions. Who's, who's the beast? What's the mark? And what is his number? There is so much debate about this, and I want to keep it simple. You know, the beast, if, if the first beast is the Roman Empire and all g- earthly governments that oppose God, it makes sense that the second beast is probably the imperial peace- priesthood, which in the first century was kind of the religion, the emperor worship, and all false religions. That oppose God. So the first beast, all governments that oppose God. The second beast seems to be all religions that oppose God. You know, that makes it uh, clearer, I think, to what's the mark of the beast. You know, all of us probably read that and we're thinking, oh, is it a physical mark? Is it, you know, a tattoo on your forehead? Is it, um, in the past, people have said microchips? Or maybe it's the COVID vaccine that became big. I got messages from people across the world saying, hey, it's the mark of the beast, the vaccine. You know, we need to remember the literature we're reading here. It's apocalyptic. It's filled with symbols and signs. And Satan is a spiritual being, and the mark is a spiritual, of spiritual in nature. It's not a physical thing. And that actually makes it a lot harder, doesn't it? Because when you walk into a room, it's not like, well, he's got the mark and he doesn't. How do you know if someone has the mark of the beast? It, you see it by their actions. Are they devoted to God or are they loyal to Satan? It's spiritual in nature. And what about 666? You know, seven's the perfect number. There's seven days of creation, there's the letter to seven churches. We've seen seven repeated throughout Revelation. And you know what number falls just short of seven? It's six, six. So Satan, in parodying, you know, he's trying to just mimic the Creator. That's all he can do. He can't create himself. He can only distort, and that's what he does here. So the number six, six, six. Some people say it, it's tied to certain figures throughout history. I think that in every generation, there are those who belong to the beast. They're marked by the number. 666 they're marked by his priorities that's going to be true until jesus returns so chapter 13 as a whole let me bring it together we see satan at work through worldly governments and through false religions what does that look like well for christians it means we need to be aware of satan's deceptions you know it's any nation that has anti-conversion laws what is that at its heart It's satanic. It's any nation with anti-proclamation laws. Whether that's in the book of Acts where they say, you can't speak the name of Jesus. And the apostles say, we're going to obey God rather than men. It's any religion except Christianity. That's Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Atheism, Mormonism. These are all lies from Satan. It's any society that pressures people against conversion. Maybe there's no laws on the book, but there's a societal pressure that says we, people from our nation, we worship these gods, not those. It's even families that dissuade members from becoming Christians. Brothers, we need to be aware of Satan's schemes. But even more, we need to endure Satan's wrath. It's so helpful to look before us And see how Christians have been faithful to do this. In 202, the Roman Emperor, Septimus Severus, he made a law against converting to Christianity. One Christian in Carthage had to endure Satan's wrath. Her name was Perpetua. You know, she was only 22 years old when she was arrested, she even had a a young son, a baby. And when she was arrested, she asked her mother, would you care for the baby if something happens to me? And friends, Satan conquered her. He conquered her through the Roman government. She was killed, thrown to the beast. But before being thrown to the beast, she encouraged her grieving friends. She said, don't let our suffering become a stumbling block to you. Friend, if you follow the Lamb, if you're a Christian, if you bear the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you are putting your life on the chopping block. And I wonder, for any of us here, would we have remained faithful like Perpetua? How do we know? I mean, think about the choices you make now. Would you be faithful if, it, if following Christ just costs you your job? What about your character? You keep your job, but you lose your soul. What about your family? If your family said, if you want to follow Jesus, we're done. That'll be the last time you hear from us. Your freedom, even your life. Consider your life today. Examine the choices that you make. Are you saying yes to Jesus and no to the world, no to sin, no to Satan? Here's two questions that you can ask each other after the service. One, how are you making sacrifices for your faith? The second question, how are you tempted to sacrifice your faith? All of us face those temptations. What are they for you? Share them with a brother or sister in the church. We see here that Satan deceives the world. You know, the visions of the beast, they are terrifying. Our enemy is great. But the last chapter, we get to take courage. Because in the last chapter, John looks heavenward. And here's the last point. Satan will be defeated forever. Listen as I read chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Friends, this is a sobering passage, but it's good news for the Christian. Satan will be defeated forever. In chapter 14, John sees The end of the world. Satan's wrath is great, but his wrath is short. It's nothing compared to the wrath of the Lamb. First, the scene shifts from the reign of the beast on earth. John looks up and he sees the reign of the Father and the Lamb in heaven. Look at verse 1. 144,000 stand with the Lamb. They are marked With the name of the Father and the Son, because they belong to God. And in verses two through three, they sing a new song. And notice only the redeemed sing, and it's loud and it's joyous. Who are these 144,000? We talked about them earlier in chapter six and seven, but look at verse four. John shares four descriptions about who they are. Look at verse four. He says, They're virgins. They follow the Lamb. They've been redeemed. They speak no lies. Now, all four descriptions are symbolic. You know, we, we know that, of course, because first it says they're virgins. If you're married, you can still go to heaven if you believe in Jesus Christ. These are symbolic, but they mean the same thing. They mean that this group of people has remained faithful to Christ, the bridegroom. They've remained faithful. And do you wonder what makes this multitude sing? They sing with such joy. Well, think about it. Why does a bride sing on her wedding day? Well, you know the answer. It's a day of celebration. So, friend, if you've been saved by the lamb, let me encourage you to sing to the lamb. Now, here's some reasons not to sing. Don't sing because you have a beautiful voice. Some of you do. Don't let that be the reason. Sing because you have a beautiful Savior. Another reason, don't sing because you've had a great week. I trust that some of you here have not had great weeks. Sing because Christ has been faithful to you all week. Another reason, don't sing only if you like this song. Maybe we sang songs today that you're like, you know what, it's not my favorite not going to sing. Don't sing for that reason. Sing because Christ is worthy of your song. He is worthy for you to sing to him. You know, as we gather as a church and sing, we anticipate this heavenly gathering of 144,000, which is all God's people, who are singing a new song. And God means for our singing to be one of the ways that we help each other endure to be faithful to Jesus Christ until he returns. Now, here's the reality. I know it's true. Some of you, you know, you really can't sing well. And I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to ask anyone to stand up. You know who you are, and likely the people around you do if you sing. Here's my encouragement to you. Keep singing. Oh, praise the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Amen? Amen? Keep singing. You know, after hearing that heavenly chorus, what does John see? He sees three angels, each with a message. Look at verses six and seven. The first angel commands all earth dwellers to fear God and give him glory. And the reason? It's because the hour of judgment has come. In verse eight, a second angel announces, Babylon is fallen. So the city of man... Whatever it is, in its entirety, it's coming down. And in verses 9 through 11, the angel warns of God's coming wrath. Friends, these verses here, verses 9 through 11, they are some of the most sobering descriptions of hell in all of the Bible. You know, I was looking um, at an article about Joel Osteen the other day. And he said, and if you don't know who he is, just don't even worry about it. But if you do know who he is, he's a prosperity preacher. You know, he said, at my church, I want people to feel encouraged. So I don't talk about sin or judgment. You know, I want to just encourage people. You know, it's, it's almost satanic to avoid the very things that God gives us to warn us of what's coming. Here, verses 9 through 11, we're told of the horrors of hell. These are not truths to avoid. They're truths to confront us. Hell is a place for all who don't follow Jesus Christ. It's a place for beast worshipers, for all who love anything or anyone more than God. Friends, it's a place that likely some of you will be if you don't repent of your sins and trust in Christ. It's a place where God's wrath is distributed in full strength. I mean, think about the, horror, the horrible pictures of judgment we have in the Old Testament. The flood is probably the worst. It, the entirety of humanity is wiped out except one man and his family. Everyone else was killed And yet not even that was God's full wrath. But hell will be. Hell is a place of conscious torment. It's a place where you'll be able to feel fully. Where you'll be able to think clearly. But it's a place you'll never be able to escape. Hell is a place of eternal punishment. George Whitfield said, consider the torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant or a day, but for millions and millions of ages. And when that's over, you'll realize that you're no closer to the end than you were in the beginning. Oh, friends, hell is a horrible place. It will be unbearable for you if you're not a Christian. But friend, if you're not a Christian, hell is an avoidable place. You don't have to go there. You don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, the Lamb, drank God's wrath in full strength for sinners. Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners. He's alive today. He is worthy of our worship. So you have a choice. Will you choose eternal death with Satan and his followers, or will you choose eternal joy, life with Christ? That's your choice. And for those of us who are Christians, how can we consider the, the gravity, the weight of eternal wrath, and take sin so lightly? One theologian said hell is like a foundation beneath a skyscraper. You know, we have the world's biggest skyscraper here in our city. Every time we drive by it, we should consider that it is a reminder. Those tons and tons of cement and steel that support that great structure are a reminder to us of the horrors of hell and the greatness of our God. God is holy. He is glorious. He is majestic. He is without rival. And when we think about hell, we should think, how could any of us possibly be in the presence of our God. And the reason that we can, the reason that on that day when Christ returns, we'll be standing and singing with him is because Jesus drank our cup. Friends, our cup is empty. There is no more wrath for you to pay. We've escaped God's wrath because Jesus chose to take it when we consider the good news of the gospel, the great surprise, it's not that people go to hell. The great surprise is that any of us get to be with God in heaven. Friends, let's let's consider what Jesus has done for us. We've escaped God's wrath. Now we need to endure Satan's wrath. We need to keep the commandments of God. We need to say no to sin. We need to hold fast to our faith in Jesus. And if we do endure, if we do die in the Lord, John says, the Spirit told him to tell us that we're blessed. We're blessed. John says, if we die in the Lord, we may rest. Friends, chapter 14 ends with the Son of Man. Jesus Christ reaps the earth for harvest in verses 14 to 20. And we'll consider it very briefly. With a great sickle, he gathers his saints in verses 14 to 16. If you look there, in that first gathering, there's no judgment. There's no mention of wrath. This is where God will gather his people to himself. But, in verses 17 to 20, It's pretty obvious. He gathers his enemies, sinners, those opposed to his name, and they are gathered and thrown into the winepress of his wrath. They're trodden outside of the city. The world is under Satan's wrath today, but on that day, the world will face the wrath of the Lamb. Friends, for all who have eyes to see, we are in the middle of a cosmic battle. But Satan's already lost. He's already lost. God's already won. But it's a battle that will rage until Christ returns. So what do we need to do? We need to do the same thing as the seven churches of Revelation, as all Christians who have gone before us, as all Christians who will come after us, we need to follow the Lamb. We need to endure and follow him wherever he goes. Let's pray. God, we praise you that we who follow Jesus will not face your wrath. We praise you for our salvation. And we do ask that you would help us to endure the wrath of Satan, to be aware of his devices and his schemes. Lord, help us be wise in our time on this earth. Help us endure. In Jesus' name, amen.